I'm Heather Passero, career consultant working in careers, employability and student enterprise. And I'm Daisy Victoria Meadham, first year politics and international relations student at the University of Southampton. For the second episode of the Class Ceiling podcast, we interviewed author and academic Lee Elliott Major, the world's first professor of social mobility. We hope you enjoy listening and that some of the subjects we cover will help and support an increased sense of inclusion and belonging among staff and students at University of Southampton. So, Lee, thank you so much for your time today. Yep, thank you for joining us on the Class Season podcast. Are you ready to get started? I'm ready. Wonderful. Our first question today is, as the UK's first professor of social mobility, what does social mobility mean to you? How do you relate to the term? And can you tell us about your personal social mobility journey? So social mobility is a personal as well as professional passion for me because I was the first in my family to go into university. I lived on my own when I was 15. Uh, if you'd looked at me, I had blonde, spiky hair, I had eyeliner. This was the 1980s, but I don't think you'd looked at me then and thought this guy might one day be a chief exec of a charity or a professor. And to be honest, my mum and dad didn't really know much about education. They split up and, and they, they just didn't know. It wasn't their fault in many ways, but they didn't have that sort of... They couldn't, couldn't help me, really. You know, I always say I, I was helped by other people. And it's really important just to recognise that. So a teacher spotted me, basically, and, and helped me go back to school because I stopped going to lessons. An uncle, my mum's brother, gave me some money to go to university. I had a full grant in those days. Money at university was different, right? We could have a debate about that, but I got a full grant. So I didn't pay any fees. I got full grant, and my uncle gave me a bit of money as well. So I was secure. I felt like I, I, was, I was sort of secure. And then, you know, over a lot, I'm 53 now, so I've, you know, I've been through a long life already. And I look back on those days, and I wish in some ways that I could be now, go back and tell me things then. And if I did do that, I think one thing I'd say is, you know, don't be intimidated by other people. You know, you know we were talking, Daisy, about a bit of classism that we can experience uh, and you can experience that in in lots of ways you know and I think I was probably a bit shy coming forward to be honest with you in those early days and I've learned now not to really worry too much what people think if you really want to make a difference in the world I think you've got to you've got to sort of say what you really believe in and I've realized that I've got something to give that others might not have so you know I come from a certain background I talk about it a lot probably too much now but that's a very different background to a, a normal professor, probably, or someone in my sort of position. But rather than seeing it as a negative, I now see it as a positive, you know. So anyway, so it's a long answer, but, you know, it's a real personal thing for me. Uh, and, and being the countries we think the world's first professor of social mobility, it makes me feel so proud. Although, as I said, said to everyone this morning, you know, my, my 17-year-old daughter always says, Daddy, when you're uh, told you're the leading social mobility expert, it's only because you're the only professor of social mobility. <laughs> always have children around you to bring you back down, right? That's what I always say. 
but yeah, no, it's a very it's a very personal thing for me. So, um, w- when you got to university, did you and do you think there is a, a dominant culture in higher education? And how do you think the British class system influences that? And, and what can be done to tackle it? So, I do think we've had lots of progress since I was a student. I do think you know, widening participation is a much bigger thing now than it was in, in my day. But I still think the dominant culture in most universities is a very middle-class culture. And we make all sorts of assumptions in that. And I think we could work much harder at making it much more inclusive. I still feel, to be honest with absolutely honest, I still feel a bit intimidated when I go... Isn't that ridiculous? But I do. I, when I go to university, yeah. I still feel... I, always, I say to people... You know, I still feel working class in many ways. Clearly, my accent's changed now. I'm a professor. But I'm, there's still the leave from age 15 Yeah, me there. too. And, yeah. and your origins stay with you. Your history, which is good, right? Daisy, it'll happen with you. When you're my age, you will still have your bring, upbringing with you, your history. And it's important to remember that. So, but yeah, I, I, think, I think we could do much better at, at challenging ourselves in terms of particularly deficit thinking you know we tend to think of getting in terms of class terms you know working class oics you know and making them into these sort of middle class sort of models actually what we should be doing is taking on that their views and and their history to make it a more diverse and inclusive culture I don't think we do that good enough yeah I think employers are starting to recognize that I was speaking I work in careers um, um, employability and student enterprise I know one of our employer engagement professionals yesterday said the the um, most um, uh, uh, predominant inquiry from employers at the moment is how can we have a more diverse workforce which is only in the past few years It's, it's, it's great isn't it the only thing I'd say to that is I do a lot of work with big corporates it tends to be mainly around ethnicity and gender, and that's really important. I mean, we've got a long way to go yeah. for equality and those. But it doesn't tend to be about class, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, we miss that dimension of diversity. We should have schemes for people from working-class backgrounds, for example. So the BBC I've done some work with, it's really good now. If you do a panel with the BBC, it has to be half women and men now, which I think is really good. Sure. But you could have posh women and posh men, for all we know, right? So so I think class is the sort of missing dimension of diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so who and what are the enemies of social mobility? Wow. So I do think inequality is probably number one. You know, so social mobility, you know, basically the chances of climbing the social ladder is, is basically what, what we mean by that. My view is that the bigger the gap between the rungs of the ladder, the harder it's going to be to climb. It, you know, focusing on social mobility isn't, shouldn't be used as an excuse to not deal with inequalities in society. And depressingly, my research suggests that we are in a, entering a period where we're going to experience, I think, expanding inequalities in society and in education. So it makes it all the more important we do something about that. Why do you think so many of us are still stuck in the same socioeconomic status as our parents or the same social rung? So I think these things take generations to tackle, right? And what we find in the the research is that often 
parents, and some of them will be split up. You know, some, sometimes, you know, like me, my mum and dad split up, so you're not maybe in that kind of stable family, although you, you have to be careful with your assumptions on this because there's m- many good single parents, right? But, but often that family environment might be slightly less stable than maybe some of the more middle-class families. But also what happens is, is that sometimes the parents will have had a bad experience in schools, right? So when their children go to school, they're probably a bit sort of still, this school feels like it's a bit like authority. You know, I talk to a lot of parents about this and a lot of them that had a bad experience in school see the education system as almost part of the authorities, but almost associated with the police and the, you know, it's like, it's sort of, it's not comfortable for them. And, and to some extent, Daisy, I, I think, you know, there's good reasons why the working class in a way reject education because to be quite frank, we've invented an education race that so, only so many people can win. And I would argue that it's, it's very much biased towards the middle classes. And the reason I say that is because, you know, it's in a very narrow academic criteria, right? So you could, you could do well in your A-levels. If you've got money you can get lots of private tutoring to get that grade up. Now, working class people, on average, are just not going to have that capacity, right? So I think there is an unlevel playing field in life. And, and, and we really need to address those inequalities, right, to, to, to address these issues. So these issues are profound. There's one study I quote when I talk, I didn't do it today, but there's one that, which is looked at the Norman invaders in 1066, right? <laughs> There's one study, it wasn't mine, another study showed that people with Norman surnames uh, were, I think, 16 times more likely to get into Oxford Cambridge in 1166. There was only Oxford Cambridge around that time. There wasn't Southampton or extra other universities. But they fast-forwarded it to, uh, to 2000, 1,000 years after the Normans invaded. And people with Norman surnames were still more likely than people with average English surnames to get into Oxford Cambridge. So... You know, these class divide is, it's been here a long time. It's embedded. That's a crazy piece of yeah. information, isn't yeah. it? And I don't want to depress you too much because I, <laughs> I do think the last 20 years we've done a lot, actually. Gosh. And, and, and if you look at university admissions over the last 20 years, there has been some progress. You know, we, there are many more people now from disadvantaged backgrounds that have gone to university. The problem I find is that it's then getting to the top of society. So if you look at the cabinet... It's incredibly posh. If you look at the top journalists, I've got a real bugbear about journalists because I feel that they should represent society more broadly. At the moment, we've got very posh journalists, right? So they see the world a certain way. So all the information that we get, that we read, that we see, is filtered through essentially a very narrow slice of society. And I think that's wrong. I think we should have people from different parts of the country, from different class backgrounds, ethnicity, gender, who help us think about the world. And at the moment, that's not the case. Sure. And you're a big advocate for tutoring, Lee. What else can be done to support academic potential in schools and colleges? So the tutoring thing came about just before the pandemic. The government were looking for ideas for how do we address these sort of missed education Remember, there was these big school closures, right? You know, it's it's not that long ago now. Most pupils were not at school. The problem with that is that if you're from a poorer background, you're probably going to go back to a home where you might not have internet access. You might be in a small room, or you might not have any study room, right? You might, you know, so so so. I think the pandemic has exacerbated those inequalities that were already there. What schools do effectively is level the playing field a bit because they get everyone in the same classroom. 
if you go to school. <laughs> Daisy was saying that she didn't go to school. And, and, and it was interesting, both of us said, I dropped out of school for a time and, and Daisy, Daisy did as well. Me if, too, actually. Oh, Bye. okay. Well, there you go. We're, we're dropouts. We're okay. all dropouts. <laughs> so tutoring, the reason why I proposed that was that it was, it was something that I felt undergraduate students, in fact, Daisy, I wish you, we'd get you doing this, right? So I felt like if we could get undergraduates, and we need to train them up, this is the thing, you've got to get them, so I'm working with some teachers to get a sort of module, and I think undergraduates would then get credit for that, that's what we're trying to, um, but then you'd go into local schools, and then you would help a young people to learn how to write basic sentences, things like that, so that there's, there's some really, and I think that could have a really big impact working with the teachers. What you don't want to do with teachers is just plant something on them because they are the experts anyway. You've got to work with schools, I yeah. think. Yeah, and it could be seen yeah. as m- more work as well, yeah. just more work. Indeed, yeah. so, you've got, yeah. so teachers don't want to be burning with more work, right? Yeah. But they are really up for trained undergraduates to help tutor. And I think for undergraduates, it would be amazing. For some undergraduates, it would be really good to meet some young people from poorer backgrounds because a lot of undergraduates, right, the truth be known are from very you know, upper-class or middle-class backgrounds. So they often won't have even experienced that, that world, right? They might come from private schools, for example. You know? so, so I actually think it would be good for society if we had more connection between uh, people from different backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I said in one of our practices, actually, that I, did, I hadn't met a middle-class person before I went to university. So it goes to show that also some middle-class people haven't met... Working class yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How important do you think education is as a tool to lessen class inequality? So I think education is a necessary but not sufficient thing in terms of addressing inequality. The reason I say that is that schools and universities can only do so much. I think they do amazing jobs and we should give them more money to do that. I, I really believe that more of our GDP, that the government's budget should go on the things that make a big difference, right? Uh, particularly teachers, I think, are underpaid at the moment. So they do do it. But what all the evidence I've been involved in shows is that it's the, the things outside schools and universities that really profoundly shape lives. And that could be how much money you earn, your parents earn. It could be your home environment, right? You know, these things are profoundly important. So by the age of five, we know that poorer children are about 19 months behind in schools readiness than their more sort of middle-class uh, counterparts. So schools are playing catch-up from day one. Um, and I think universities is a big stretch, right? You know, we, we, we do do a lot of work, but you're then getting them at age, what, 18. So, you know, a lot has happened. So I think any, anyone serious about sociability, you would have a strategy that would have, you'd have a universal early years programme. That, that you have to have that, in my view. We did have that 25 years ago. We developed it. It got lost in the the years of, you know, uh, the previous last decade or so. You've got to have an early year system in my view. But I also think you could work with parents more. I, I think parents could be helped more. You have to be really careful, again, not to, have, not to be deficit, in deficit mode. You know, here's a middle-class person, we're going to tell you what to do. I think you have to be really careful how you... Because it won't work, by the way, if you do that. So I think we could do more help with parents, actually. This is what you can do with your son or daughter... To get, so it might, might be just basic things like reading with them a, a book every, every now and again. It might be informing them of what the choices are in the education system. Uh, coming back down to, back to that point I made earlier, you know, some people would argue the education sy- system is set up 
with a very narrow sense of what talent is. And I, I, one of the problems, you know, we're in a university environment. I'm a professor. Of course, academic uh, skills are important. But there's so many young people I meet that are either good creatively or in terms of just more practically, technically. And I don't think the school system motivates them. I don't think it celebrates it. It doesn't reward them. So I think there's a lot of young people who go into the education system, it doesn't quite fit them. And then they're labelled as failures. Then they feel bad about themselves. So I I do think we, we need a national debate about how you reward different types of talent right there's yeah. you know, we're not all academic you yeah know? yeah so I think that's a really big issue for this country I think that's really true as well because kind of access to non-standard or non-traditional education is something reserved to people who can afford to pay private tuition fees whether that's kind of like independent schools or private tutoring it is kind of reserved mm. for those people yeah the other thing I'm really worried about the moment is the creative industries and things and I put journalism in that as well they are becoming industries for the elites because they're not paid that well right you need to know people in those industries right you know days we were talking about you know i was saying what what do you want to do eventually you know in, here in Southampton, you know a lot of those big industries are in london so that that's suddenly a big obstacle if you don't live in london you, you know how are you going to live there if you a lot of them are not paid very much at the beginning so i think we need to be far more radical actually in giving bursaries I would even argue paying people more if they're from certain backgrounds. I mean, I've got more radical with this over the years because mm-hmm. I've been doing this a long time and I haven't seen much shift. I think I think schools and universities have been almost counterbalancing the inequalities that have been getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like we're keeping it in check. But if you look at the top of society, it's pretty similar, to be honest, as it was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, right? I, I was really interested in, in your talk earlier today at the FACE conference, which I thought was really inspiring, actually. And you talked about at some point there's going to be a revolt. And I think you, you know, there's a prediction of 2034, I'll be retired then. But I, I think there already is a little bit of revolt. For example, there's an organisation called Common People, which I love. Yeah, and, um, that's a great track by Pulp. It is, yeah. And it's led by a guy called Jed Hallam who works in the creative industries and it's to promote class diversity in the creative industries. So I think there's, there's lots of pockets of, of revolt and, you know, that, and that's um, an area that I've kind of uh, seen kind of cry out, really. Because if you're, if you're in an environment where you're working or studying, and we've talked about this a lot, and people around you, you can't connect with them at some point you're going to go what's this about mm. what's going on mm. let's change it i think it's a really good point and daisy i think your generation not to put too much responsibility mm-hmm. on you i think you should rise up and challenge some of the things that heather and i have experienced in our lives you know we've had we've had black lives matter we've had the me too i mean these are groundswells of of, of feelings that, that the people come up with and i think it'd be the same for this sort of agenda whether we call it the social class divide whether i call it social ability you know, I, I hope that in a way people will rise up and challenge some of the norms in society. And I don't think it's going to happen any other way. Yeah, way. absolutely. And I, I think this the kind of when, when there is social mobility, social mobility has occurred, as has in our lives, then there's also kind of a projected shame for having material things. There's, there's lots of narrative for, you know, you've changed and things like that. But why, you know, as Nye Beban said, why should champagne be the reserve mm. of, the, of the upper classes? 
you know, we all deserve to enjoy the fruits of our labour. One thing beneath all yeah. these debates, <laughs> sorry. sorry, one thing you know, is what, how we judge success in life, right? It's very different when you're, 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 you're as young as you, Daisy, and as old as me. You, you think of life success in different ways. But I think you've got to be really, because the implication of social mobility sometimes is, you know, you haven't made it if you haven't got to the top, however we define it, whether it's a prestigious professor or someone who's rich or whatever. And I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. I think it should be about find, I know this sounds very idealistic, but it's about finding your own path, right? What are you happy doing? I'd, I'd probably add what is valuable to other people. I, I mean, I'm an idealist, right? And what will give you a, a, a work-life balance? Because a lot of people I know have been very successful, and I've met lots of millionaires and famous people. When you, when you meet them, they, they basically sacrifice their whole lives. They, you know, they've divorces, they've sort of dysfunctional almost. And I, I mean, you look at them, on paper you're a success. But actually, I think success, for me, the most successful people are the people that are one with themselves, They've done a good job. They contributed. They've got some sort of friends and family left around, you know. And, and I think in the press particularly, we have this notion of success. And, and by the way, I think for this generation, it's even harder because you've got all the beautiful sort of bodies as well. It's like, you know, we've not only have we got to be rich and famous, but we've got to be beautiful in, in a certain way as well. I just think that's an unrealistic. That makes most of us miserable, by the way, because no, not, not anyone really can live up to those standards. Is that due to journalists? not being from a working class background because the narrative is I think we talked about what makes you middle class and and Daisy said straight away a kitchen island (laughs) very true you know but that's a material thing isn't it it's not how you spend your days and and the value you you offer to society so one of the one of the interesting things uh, one of the big predictions of later life outcomes is whether you sit down for dinner with with your parents (laughs) right assuming you've still got your parents around my partner and I, we try and do this with our teenage kids, right? Partly because I say, oh, well, that's, that, that's the measure. But I think it's probably a proxy for other things that you talk to each other, that, you, that they're well-fed, right? But it's quite interesting. That's one of the strongest predictors of, of future outcomes. But, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that we set up uh, too many people to fail, actually. We don't value in our public debates the things that are actually good in life, giving back to others, being kind to each other. You know, it, it tends to be a very narrow view in my mind of what success is. You know, and I think the social media for Daisy's generation makes it even worse as far as mm-hmm. I can see. Do you know what I mean? You've got these uh, super sort of models or whatever it is or the, you know, that, that everyone then has to try and be like, which is just... Thank God that, that bypassed my generation. Yeah. And by the way, their lives are sad, probably. Probably. Trying to live up to this unrealistic expectation, All right? All the time, time in the gym. <laughs> I don't think that it's an accident, kind of how working class people are kind of encouraged to kind of, oh, if you want to, success is material items, like consumerism is very Mm. much pushed on us. It is. When really, in reality, we're not accessing the kind of, the wealth that we think we are with, like we can maybe get to save up like a month's wage and get some material items, but that's not what wealth is. I think you're, like, Mm. I agree with you, that's not what success is. But when you've seen other people have it... Mm. As you're growing up and you haven't got it, it's desirable, isn't it? And when you get it, you think you, you've made it to a certain extent. And my kitchen island speaks volumes to me, but I, I do have to have a word with myself, you know, about it's, it's, that's not the most important thing. So I wish some academic would analyse TV programmes. You know, it's anything from, I was mentioning earlier about the sort of 
winner-takes-all programs that we have. I'm trying to think of them now, but yeah, where, where they, you have a competition and someone wins and everyone else fails. But I'm also thinking of the material stuff. So there's, I don't know, what's it called, the home? I don't watch my partner as the home programs where basically people create these amazing homes, you know, and it's all very, implicitly, it's all about material wealth, you know, and I, I don't, I, I honestly, I've met billionaires, I've met, and they're not the happiest people in the world, right? Mm. Of course, you've got to have some money, and this comes back to inequality. You've got to have some money so you're not stressed for, for the next bill coming through, right? But you don't have to be a multimillionaire to be happy, honestly. And I think that a lot of these debates come back to inequality because I think we've got, we're too unequal in this society. We don't. I think we should have a, a tax on wealth. There are some extremely wealthy people in this country just getting a little tiny bit more of them and spending it on particularly education, I think. Well, you have people missing meals because they need to get the bus pass for the week to work. Yeah, yeah. And I think the next decade is going to be really tough for us as a a society. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have more people that won't even be able to get... I've done schemes for children who can't actually pay to get into school because they live quite far away from the school or college. And I think a lot of the people from more privileged backgrounds don't actually understand that. They don't because they don't see it. The media doesn't cover it as much as it should do, etc., etc. The wolf has always been very far away from their door. Yeah. Yeah. How important are accents for those on a social mobility journey? Yeah, it's a really good question. This my accent has changed a lot. So I talked a bit like because I'm from London. I talked like that a long time ago. And, and honestly, I don't know why, but subconsciously, my accent has just become this sort of Thames sort of estuary sort of... And, and I think that's partly because of the culture that I've, I've been in for ma- many years. So we know it does change. There was a really interesting study on David Beckham and how his accent changed. So what, the early days, again, Daisy, you might, might be too young to remember, when he was first a star, he had a very East London accent. But now you listen to him, and it's all quite sort of... not posh but certainly posher than it was before so accents do matter there aren't many studies on this we really i'd love to do a study on this it's very hard to do but what you'd want to do is look at two people with similar sort of attributes but one had a particular accent and the one and the other had another accent and did that affect their life chances i suspect it would but there are very few studies that have actually looked at it but i'm convinced it does matter but i think by the way again I think the BBC and other broadcasters should have more diversity of accents. I don't, you know, I don't think the solution is we all become middle class again, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. and they do, yeah. they do sort of have tokenist sort of. They have a few Scottish accents on, right? But they tend to be. When I listen to BBC radio, a lot of it sounds the same to me because they're all from very similar backgrounds. They all have similar voices, and I, I just like oh, I'm dying for just to hear someone with a bit more of a twang, you know, a bit more of a. Brummy accent. Or I a, get or very a, excited you know. when there's an accent. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's tragic. I get very excited. When Hugh Edwards started a few years ago, yeah, I, I, I've never watched the news so much. Yeah, it's just exciting. But you've got to remember, class, in my view, is about origin, right? So I would still class myself in some ways as working class because that's where I'm from. I still play dad's football. I still go down the pub. There's there's bits of me that you would say, yeah, that's sort of stereotypical. But, of course, I I'm, I'm now speak like this. I'm a professor. I speak. So, so you've got to be careful because sometimes class can be covered up by who you become. 
And and so again, I, for the diversity thing, I think I think you need people. If you heard me talking on the radio, you think, oh, it's another posh person, you know. But actually, it might be someone from a working class background. So you just got to be careful with that. Was there a pinpoint moment in your journey that helped you increase your social mobility and kind of go from where you were, which you've spoken a little bit about, to where you are today? You know, Daisy, it's really really hard. My memory is failing me these days, but. I, th- I think there were a few points in my journey where someone basically gave me confidence. Someone said, it was a teacher I remember who sort of said, Lee, you, you could go to university. You are clever. I, I can't think of what the terms were now. And I remember uh, there was one question. I mean, I did physics. I did, we were talking earlier about I did probably the hardest subject, I some people would say. And I was at the back of a class and I'd just gone back to retake my A-levels. And I always remember this. No one really knew me because I, I was at this college. I went, so I went from a school to this sixth form college. And, and the teacher sort of asked a question. And, and I remember realised in those days I had blonde spiky hair. I had big hooped earrings. I like, so I don't think I looked like the normal student. But he asked a question and I put my hand up and I knew the answer. And I just remember his face was like, oh, my God, this, there's something behind this, this person. And that changed his attitude to me. And then he helped me. The other person who helped me was my mum's brother. They all passed away now, sadly, but he didn't go to university. He died of alcoholism, a lovely man, and and he gave me money to do a master's degree. So I did a degree, and then, uh, you know, to be honest, I probably would have stopped there, but he very generously, and and I upset, so I get emotional thinking about it now, because, you know, he was a gas meter reader, so he had saved up... And he gave me money to pay the fee to do a master's degree. Without Uncle Michael, I wouldn't be here. It upsets me because he, he died early. But, you know, so I, I, there's a few moments where, and that's really important, by the way, because I think that some people I meet who are successful and sometimes they, they think it's just about them. I think it's usually other people that have helped you. And, and we tend to forget that, you know. And, and the other thing to remember this is I try and remind myself because I can now help other people, right? So because I'm a busy person like we all are, I really try hard to now talk to people like Daisy and say, oh, maybe you come along to a meeting with me. Or, you know, because it just, it, you know, it, nothing for me to go into the government and talk to them. But if I took someone like Daisy with me, you could just see what it's like. And that's for me giving back in a way that other people gave back to me. And I think we could all do a bit more of that. It's so important. It's such a, a, a nice insight into Uncle Michael. He had a vision for you. It's um, really inspiring. In your session earlier, you were asked a question about the State of the Nation report from the social mobility. What, what are your thoughts on that very recent report? So the, the latest State of the Nation report, social mobility, the sort of narrative, one of the narratives around it is that things aren't quite as bad as people like me are making out in many ways. And I, I think, you know, in response to that, I think it, it is complex and you can use different measures. And there has been some progress but I don't think we should shy away from the profound challenges that we as a society face. There's a cost of living crisis now that is affecting people all over the country. In terms of I would, what I would call the basics of life, being able to feed yourself. You know, these are, think about it, 21st century, you know, we're modern society, and, and yet we have these profound issues. I, I, I think it's outrageous in many ways. So... I'm just conscious when I talk because people, I always say, look, I'm going to depress you all today because it's going to be, you know, these are messages that are hard. But unless we face up to those issues, I don't think we're going to make the world a 
better place. And um, and I'm inspired by some people in the past, like I was talking in, in the talk at the FACE conference today about President uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was an amazing man, by the way. He suffered many conditions, you know, and still was able to be president of the US. He invested a lot of government money in people. You know, the, the famous GI Bill, 8 million veterans came back from the war. They all went to university. You know, you can do amazing things in t- in t- when times are hard. I really do believe this. I mean, I know it sounds very idealistic, but I honestly think it's up to us. I'm looking at the two of you. Yeah, and it's us as a community. It's not necessarily the government. You know, they're, they're going to... Maybe not. We'll see. But I, I think I really believe if there was enough of us to rise up, we could change the world. I, I know it sounds so idealistic. I totally but, believe uh, that. But, you yeah. know, I, yeah. I think some people feel in some ways, you know, we were talking about this prediction there'd be a revolt of some sort unless yeah. things change. You can either revolt or you can try and change the world. And, and I do think we have it in us to do it. I really do. I really do. And I, I, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning and... And as you say, working with Daisy, who is our future, the educated working classes, is, um, and, and doing this podcast, in, in, I think in a small way, is, is, is changing the world, hopefully. I think, yeah, there definitely is that kind of power for the people to rise up without meaning to sound too radical. But I mean, it's completely true. I mean, if you think about kind of what, again, what Thatcher did to kind of just the general consensus in the country, it became very individualistic. People became disassociated from their class because they were basically being told class doesn't exist or literally being told class doesn't exist. You're all individuals. You all, society is meritocratic. You kind of, you all have the same opportunities. And I feel like people have disassociated from their class and they might not even recognise the kind of classism or um, discrimination or... Prejudice, yeah. yeah I, I totally agree with that. I think that there's been so many positive debates over the last decade or so in terms of ethnicity and gender, and there's still not enough women at the top of society, by the way. But there's not enough about class, and there's a lot of people in this country who are still working class. And, and I think the Brexit vote, I mean, I voted, you'd predict that, you know, remain, but I don't think the liberal elite understood that there were a lot of working class communities who hadn't been treated that well and voted out in my view, for the you know for the wrong reason, but but that it was part. I think that was part of a sort of vote to say two fingers up to the elites in a way, right? Because we're not getting much. We're not getting much in our lives from the existing system. So let's try something. I do think, but also come back to journalism. I think there was a lot of miscommunication of of the truth actually, um, and that's why journalists are important. We get them off from all backgrounds. Yeah, you got, that's a good full circle observation. Absolutely. Shift symbols of working class culture and just to kind of say what we mean by that is kind of things like dialect, accent, clothes, all of that. Um, be celebrated and normalised in, in a university environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do think we... Sorry, Daisy, you can, you're the more an expert on this than me, probably. But I, I, do, I do think we need to celebrate working class culture as well as other cultures. I go to lots of events. I'm, I'm a school governor and trustee, and, all this, and it's really interesting. Some of the school events I go to, they're amazing in that they celebrate all these different cultures, you know, and particularly in London where I'm, there's lots of these amazing people from all around the world that now are Londoners. The one missing thing in these celebrations is white working class culture, uh, which has always been interesting, and, 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 and they don't even turn up to the events I've been to. And there's a bit of me thinking, how inclusive are we being here 
to, again, coming back to class. But, I, but Daisy, how do you feel in the university here? Do, I mean, what do you feel about it? Um, I feel like, for me, obviously, I think it's to be celebrated. Um, on the previous podcast, I won't go through it again, but I've kind of talked about some experience I've had where people have kind of been very directly classist towards me, um, kind of making comments about my background, like being from a council estate and kind of correcting the way that I talk. Um, literally, yeah, correcting it, um, which is insane. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I think we should be encouraging people not to assimilate. Like, as bad as that might sound, like, some people might think, oh, that's terrible. Like, you're telling people they shouldn't progress. But I don't see it as progression. I don't see that as, like, progression in terms of how much money you make. I don't think there's any other type of progression there. Like, it shouldn't be to do with class. You can be working class, talk the same, dress the same, and still be in the same environment and taking up the same spaces, people in middle class and kind of buy into that culture. I don't know if it's maybe just me having a problem with any type of authority or uniforms in general, but, um, yeah, I do think even things like uniform clothes could be a little bit strict, and I think they have no place in university environments. Um, luckily, they don't. Um, that was just the point I decided to make. Think a, bit. A, a lot of the sociological theories on class, yeah, originally, it wasn't meant to be hierarchical, right? The, the, the class groupings weren't necessarily... It was, it was just saying people are slightly different, they have different views, but it wasn't one's better than the other, mm. right? You know, so it's quite interesting how that's become... It's almost happened by default. Um, the other thing I'd say to people is just because someone's got an accent or the way they look doesn't mean they're, they're stupid, right? I feel like... There's an assumption that if you talk in a certain way and you look in a certain way, you can't be bright. I can tell you that is completely wrong. That is, you know, you meet people from all class backgrounds. Honestly, they're the, some of the brightest people I have met are with working class. Uh, they just haven't necessarily played the game and gone through the system in a way that, that maybe middle class people have. So it's so crucial. I, I do think we need more role models in, in, in sort of national, and I, again, Daisy will know more than me on this. Certainly on, among the older people I see on, on, again, on TV and on radio, I just don't think there's enough diversity in terms of class, you know? And if it is done, it's done in a patronising way, you know? Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> so one of the dilemmas is that people like me who are work class have become sort of middle class in their outward persona. And so, you, you know, and, and you feel like you need to behave in a certain way. Well, one thing I found... Um, in middle class professions is as well the people there's a tendency and I've got no research to back this up by the way they will stab you in the back when, when so, so they're nice to your face but years later you'll find that they sort of basically told someone else that you know they shouldn't pick your thing or whatever whereas I find working class culture can be a bit more direct it can be basically you know someone doesn't like you they basically say it to you they have it out there's, it's a bit more honest I think this is I think this is some of the attributes that employers are looking for yeah. that frankness I think someone had fed back about our last podcast being like an authentic conversation you know it wasn't um, formal yeah in any way and employers yeah. really appreciate honesty don't they and authenticity yeah. is, is, a, is a way of being honest yeah. and they're also maybe more loyal you know there was one uh, I, I presented to a bunch of chief executives of big companies a few years back and they were complaining because all these very privileged people were taking years out because they could do they had flats in London where they could literally I'm just going to take a year out of my job now 
the sad thing is most of us don't have that luxury. So I said to them, well, maybe you should get more working-class people because they, they're going to need these jobs. You know, be they're, they're potentially <laughs> more loyal employees, right? But I think you're right. It's got to be good. You've got to be honest and upfront. Okay, Lee, so uh, social class is not yet a protected characteristic under the Equality Act um, 2010. Does the issue of class uh, need to be tackled uh, separately like this? Yeah, do you know, I, I saw a poster on the, on the tube in London recently and it, and it was sort of saying, we don't want any sort of hate crimes on the tube based on all these characteristics. It was everything but social class. I wish it was a protected characteristic in many ways, but yeah... Now, a lot of my campaigning is around getting class into diversity discussions as much as these other characteristics. So, and, and we know, by the way, Heather, that actually your class background, however defined, is, has a profound impact on your life chances, right? We know this. Uh, and so, you know, why aren't we doing more about it? So, yeah, no, I, I totally think that, that it should be central to diversity efforts. Can you give us a quick definition of imposter syndrome and do you feel like you suffer from it? I still do suffer from it. I, I, I explain it as this sort of, I had it today when I was being introduced for the FACE conference. You know, someone was saying, oh, Lee's the first professor of social mobility. They didn't even mention my OBE, actually. But, you know, I, I, sort, of, I, I sort of, when someone, when someone starts summarising what I've done, I honestly feel like an imposter. I feel like, who is this person they're talking about? And what is this audience doing waiting for me to give a talk? And some days it's stronger than others, to be honest. And, and, and I, I talk about it with people to this day. I don't think it ever goes away from me. I think, I think it stays. But it's that sense of someone coming behind me and tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Lee, we found you now. We're going to take you out of this university environment. We're going to put you back in uh, Felton, West London, where I was from originally home to the Young Offenders Institution there. I wasn't in the Young Offenders Institution, but I lived very close to it. It's almost like, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm classic, what I'd call an awkward climber. So I, I, I sort of feel a bit, and now my mum has passed away and that, but I feel a little bit, I lost links to where I was from because I moved away from home as well, I remember. And, and I never quite recovered from that, to be honest. And a lot of people I know from where I was from originally would probably, they'd probably think I'm super posh. My brother used to say I sound like Tony Blair. You know, I was this person that went somewhere and they were sort of proud of me, but they didn't quite understand it. And, and I lost, but then even now in universities, I still feel a bit like an imposter. So I'm sort of caught in the middle. Caught between two worlds, yeah. Caught between, and some yeah. people have, have explained it exactly like that. It's almost like it's two worlds and you don't quite... Existing, and I hope Daisy, you get beyond this because honestly, it's it's something that I struggle with to this day. Is that I don't quite feel at home wherever. And what I do think, you know, a lot of my heroes have always felt like they were outsiders. So that kind of makes me think, yeah, maybe this is just part of me. And if I want to change the world, I'm just going to have to always feel like a bit of an outsider, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, that motivates me. But it, it probably means you'll never be quite comfortable. Yeah, maybe. we we were doing a social for our social mobility network, and we were thinking. What could we do? Um, what could we do um, for Freshers' Week, wasn't it? Because yeah. very often there's like the lacrosse society and yeah, you know, other societies as well. You know, but you know, and uh, someone in the social mobility network suggested a bit of karaoke. <laughs> and we were we were all down with that because I was thinking, what would the working class activity be? Karaoke. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, why do you think graduates from non-traditional backgrounds, for want of a better phrase, but um, it's the best one I could think of for this question. Very often earn less in their first graduate role. 
So we know that there, in my view, is discrimination in the workplace. So, you know, we know, as you say, from the stats that someone with the same degree, same university, same grade, if they're from a, a working class background or less privileged background, will earn less than their more privileged counterpart. And partly, I think it's networks, you know, it's who you know and, and, and the workplace um, that, that does matter. So who gets, for example, internships, you know, these internships that are so crucial now. Again, what wasn't such a big thing in my day, you know, I sound like an old man. Here. But for, for days' generation, you've got to go through this sort of precarious work stage in many industries now, which is getting work experience, is getting that internships. Um, the problem with all that is, or it's freelancing, in a lot of the creative industries, freelancing, the problem with all that is there is a systematic bias uh, against working class people, the, re- the reason is because you know, if if you're say my children, for example, you know, I my partner, we got a house in London. Now, if if they were involved in one of these industries, they've got a house to go, they've got a room to go back to. We can keep them going for probably five years, right? Uh, now, if you don't have that, what are you going to do? You can't afford the rent, particularly in London, you know, places like that. Probably Southampton, I'm guessing as well, right? So there are systematic, I think, biases against those from working class backgrounds. I also think it's about culture. I think a lot of, I work, I work with a lot of companies and I still think they use middle-class proxies to judge talent. So for example, interview, an interview, right? We all, we've all done it. I've done it as chief exec. I've, I've been on both sides of that interview table. It's a middle-class skill, really. You know, turning up with a, three strangers in front of you going to ask you lots of questions. It's a performance. It's a middle-class thing. I think there's a lot of, Working class people who find that quite alienating and yet are probably just as good or even better in the job that they're being selected for. And better communicators, actually. And better communicators. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think we use, the workplace uses proxies of middle class as talent. Uh, and I work with companies now to say, okay, what exactly, ta- what talent are you looking for, right? Now, if it is to present in front of the public, maybe then, okay, maybe you could do it. But if it's something else, is the interview the appropriate selection mechanism is it looking at uh, a levels is it what is what is the specific talent you're you're looking for but i do think that other thing about precarious work early on in careers is a really big thing actually for young people because if you don't if you can't pay the rent to survive you know so there's a lot of unpaid internships which i think should be banned completely absolutely and i think i think they are unless they're a part of a course of study but it still goes on it's, it's actually yeah. not legal. Oh, they yeah. Yeah. about like four pound. And my brother was yeah. twenty three on an internship that was less than five pound an hour, and it literally is like he got no qualification from it. It literally is just a way to exploit yeah. kind of not. De- I don't want to say desperate. It's probably the wrong word, but people yeah. who need these opportunities and they exploit them for free labor basically because they're yeah. not having the proper progression they should be getting out of something like an internship. They're not having that investment into their future careers. I think, yeah. I think that it, it should be really looked into and the prosecution should be made because no, it's, totally not, it's not legal unless it's part of a I think, of by the way, Heather, sorry, but I, I, one thing that came back to me again, I, I know people sort of laugh at this, but I think we should have a code of conduct that, that you know, these are the things that you should and shouldn't do in terms of social media. So I think parents shouldn't write their children's personal statements, you know. I know some are always going to do that, but I almost think in the workplace we also we need that code of conduct as well that you, that you're going to you know, not use these middle class proxies for mm. talent. You're not going to do internships unpaid. I think we need a moral code almost. Sure. Uh, just one last question before we finish up. Um, do you think employers are waking up to the value and unique attributes of working class graduates? 
I think we're at very early stages in this. There are some companies that have now um, published working class targets. So we will have, so KPMG, the big accounting firm that BBC recently have. I know that you've got to be careful with targets. Heather will know this in the university system. We have all these targets and it, and it sometimes drives bizarre behaviour, unintended consequences. But I, but I think it's really good that some companies now are saying we are going to have a certain proportion of our managers from working class backgrounds by 2025 or whatever it is. So, so they're, But they're, they are the set exceptions and not the rule. When, when we looked at FTSE 100 companies, so these are the big companies in, in this country, we found that I think it was like five of them had genuine sort of commitments to social mobility or social class diversity in their diversity sort of strategies. So it's, it's really early days. But in many ways, I think, you know, they're, they're doing more than some universities are. I mean, I think one thing I say about universities, coming back to the culture, is it, we should look at the staffing in universities as well. We should do our own audits. That, and that, because you know, cultures are about people, right? So... I mean, I don't know what it's like in Exeter or Southampton, honest, because it hasn't been done. You know, what are the universities? But I think we should look at what the staffing backgrounds are. And that's, by the way, should be about the academic side as well as the professional side, right? That's quite controversial because in many ways, Daisy, the, the, the academics is almost a protected species. No one will go there, right? So, uh, and I think what some of the problems in universities culturally is down to the academics, actually, not the professional staff. Representation. Yeah, absolutely. Um Lee, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you for making it a conversation. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You've been really good. You've been really insightful. I think that's the same word I used in the last one. <laughs> that's not good. Um, been amazing. <laughs> Smashing the class ceiling.